You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6.30 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. How you doing, Revolution Church? All right, we can deal with that. Um, but before we get going into this... Um, just, uh, just a, a, qu- a quick address, and uh, please don't take this as me, um, how do I say this, yelling uh, at the congregation of our church. Um, Brandon gives announcements uh, for things like free market and things like uh, like the food we're going to do on Saturday and all that kind of stuff that our church has, has kind of become known for in our community for doing those things. And uh, here in probably the last few months, we've seen a, a decline um, in people volunteering. Now, we have like a solid core group of people who always show up, and it seems like roughly 5% of the, of the church ends up doing like 90% of all the volunteering. Um, so that being said, uh, and this is kind of an overly used metaphor uh, that I hear preachers use in their churches, um, but at Rev, if, if you're here and you're here often um, and you count this place as anything remotely like a home church, or if you're part of our core group, people who have talked about wanting to be members here, um, this is not a cruise ship that we come and we are served at. And that's what a lot of churches have become, is just somewhere to come and get you know spiritually fed or whatever word you want to use and then just uh, gorge yourself on theology and gorge yourself on doctrine and then never go out into the community and never do anything to, to evangelize or tell people the gospel or to serve the poor. And we're not about that here. Um, this is a battleship, right? If you're here, you're here to work. You're here to serve. Um, we're here to love you as well. We're, we're here to, you know, counsel. We're here to pastor you um, and see you grow spiritually. But part of that spiritual growth is serving people. So in light of that, um, please um, be willing to inconvenience yourself uh, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of our community, in order to love people. Because it will inconvenience you. Uh, but not to give anyone a Jesus juke or anything, God ultimately inconvenienced himself in Christ in order to save you and I. Right? And this is our gratitude, is to be willing to inconvenience ourselves for the better of others. Right? So, uh, with that out of the way, we can get going into this. I usually don't start that somber or you know, rebuke, I suppose might be the word. Um, yeah, oh, I feel like I need to tell you this too. I didn't realize what shirt I was wearing before I left the house today. Um, I am not a Satanist. Um, I understand that as an upside-down cross. Uh, you ever heard of St. Peter, right? St. Peter's cross. Peter was crucified upside down because he said that he uh, wasn't worthy of dying the same way that the Lord Jesus died, right? So that's why that this is here. This is my old band's t-shirt. Um, again, shameless self-promotion. You should go check our music out online. It was really good. Um, but yeah, I just, I don't know why. I, I, I know why. I need to tell people why that this is an upside down cross. I do not endorse Satanism. Um, that'd be the greatest irony of a pastor. Um, Anyway, now that it's sufficiently awkward in here and any of you newcomers have no idea what you've come into in this church, uh, I'm glad you're here. My name's Dave, and I'm the teaching pastor here at Revolution. Uh, So, anyway, now that we got all the weirdness out of the way, uh, we are tonight, we're picking back up in our series uh, called Bible Stories, Christ in the Old Testament. And what we're doing is we're looking at the most famous Old Testament stories, and we're seeing how they all point to and foreshadow the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and when we're doing that, because the New Testament scriptures, right, in, in Colossians and in Hebrews, and even out of Jesus' own mouth, uh, says that all scripture points to Jesus. Right? He even says, like you, he said to the Pharisees, you look to the scriptures seeking eternal life, but you don't realize that all scripture points to me. 
right? So we take Jesus at his word. If all scripture points to him, then we need to look back and see how everything points to and foreshadows him. Um, Everything in the Old Testament was just a type and shadow of the one who was to come, right? With better promises, um, a, a better a better actual type instead of just a, an archetype foreshadowing. Um, so what I want us to do in looking at this um, is, is I want us to become more familiar with the Old Testament and more familiar with the whole Bible and, and see that those claims of Jesus are true, that everything really is all about him and that our lives are really all about him or should be. Uh, everything exists for him and for his glory like we talked about last week. So all things ultimately point to him. Um, but I also want us to see that these stories, that, uh, how, many, how many people grew up in church? Right on, right? So you remember things like Noah and the Ark, right? I've turned into like cute little kids' stories and like people decorate their nurseries with like a picture of a boat and like a flood and they don't realize that, hey, this whole story is about how God threw his wrath down on the earth and killed everyone except for eight people. Not exactly like a story you tell your kid before you tuck them in and put them to bed, right? That was meant to be a little bit funny, but apparently not, um, right? So like th- these stories are much more than children's stories, Right? Again, we tell our children these things because the Bible tells us to train our children up in the way of the Lord. Right? But these aren't kids' stories. And they're not just morality tales either. These things are much more than that. They teach us about who God is right? and how his people are supposed to be. Um, so this evening, uh, in light of all that and looking through this series called Bible Stories, we're going to be looking at the story um, or historical account, would it be a better way to put it, of the Tower of Babel. Um, and in this story, we see the origin of all language families, right? The origin of all language. That at one point in time, all of humanity spoke the same language, and then we didn't in an instant and through an act of God. Um, so the Bible is a historical book, and it records all kinds of events for us, this being a, a pretty big one, right? Uh, and when we see in this story how nations began to form uh, as God scattered people from this city called Babel, and he scattered them throughout the world. Uh, but more than that, this story is one of God's triumph over the rebellion of human independence. Right? So as we look at the sin of the people of Babel in this story, I want us all to consider that how we're guilty of the same sin. Right? A lot of the times we like to read the Bible and say, I can't believe they screwed up that bad, or I can't believe that they were this kind of wicked, and we completely overlook the fact that we are every bit as bad, that humanity is the exact same as it's always been. Um, we're no better than the, than the worst fool of the Bible. Um, but by God's grace, we're going to see the foolishness of our rebellion and our idolatry in this story. And we're going to repent and look to Christ. Right? Look to Christ for salvation. Look to Christ for everything it is that we actually desire. Uh, so a little bit of background before we actually get into the text. Uh, just so you know, if you're one of the people that likes to have a hard copy Bible, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 11 this evening. And there are Bibles in the backs of those pews. If you're new here, take one home with you. Um, Oh, and I feel like I should warn you this too. We're working on getting new Bibles. Those are new living translations out there. We are going to be reading off of the ESV, the English Standard Version. Um, so there's a little bit of a disconnect there. But those are good translations. That's our gift to you. Take it home. Uh, but a little bit of background before we get into Genesis 11. Um, the flood, right? The last story that we looked at was the story of Noah and the flood and how God, uh, God had seen that man was thoroughly and continually wicked. And they had been this way since the fall. It says that every thought of their heart was evil continually. Right? Ever since the fall of man in Eden, whenever Adam and Eve sinned against God by eating the fruit that he told them not to. Um, an act of rebellion that man had just gotten continually more and more and more wicked. So God decided to judge the entire world in a flood. Um, and again, it's incredibly dark, but God killed all but eight people. 
And some theologians have done the math, and they say that it's, it's quite possible that there were millions of people on the earth by this time, and God killed all but eight. And the fact that God spared eight was a ridiculous work of grace and mercy towards humanity, because Noah was not exempted whenever it said, all men are continually wicked, always. Noah's in there. Noah was a sinner. So the fact that God saved eight sinners was ridiculous grace. But then we saw after the flood, God promised to never drown the earth again in judgment. Not that he never promised to judge again, but he said, I will never destroy earth in a flood in my judgment again. We see in the New Testament, God says he will destroy the earth by fire uh, when he does it again. But even though God judged the world in a flood, this, this torrent of water, even though he did that, that judgment did not change man's heart. Consider that for a second. Fear couldn't change man's heart. Right? Man stayed wicked. And I say that because Genesis 8.21 says this, And when the Lord, this is after Noah has presented a sacrifice, after the flood waters recede, And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. Right? So even after the flood, we see... Uh, God saying, not because man has changed, because man is still evil for, even from his youth, but just because God is gracious that he will never destroy, that way, that, that, destroy earth that way again. But then God goes on after that in Genesis chapter 9. He gives Noah and Noah's family the same command that he gave Adam and Eve, right? So there's eight of you here. And he says this in Genesis 9.1. And God blessed Noah and his sons, and said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth. Right? It's the same command that God gave Adam and Eve back in Genesis chapter 1. This is all going to come together here in just a second. I know it seems kind of disconnected. Just bear with me. So now here in Genesis 11, we are looking at a post-flood world. Right? God has given the world to man again as an act of grace because he is a good gift-giving father. But again, Genesis 8.21 says man is still wicked. So post-flood world, we're going to fast forward about 100 years now, is what a lot of biblical scholars think, that Babel happens about 100 years after the flood. Right? Now, Babel is just, a, is just a fun fact for you. Babel is just another way of saying Babylon. Right? Same idea, same place. Um, so fast forward 100 years, we're at the city of Babel, and it was pl- planted by a guy, Genesis 10 tells us, named Nimrod. Yeah. Nimrod means, we will rebel. Yeah, let's have that guy be mayor of our city whenever we know God has just recently wiped out the whole world in a flood. Yeah, we will rebel. Let him do that. We'll do that. This will be great. Um, Especially with the election coming. Like, that's just a funny joke to me. It's all up in here. Uh, I'm not telling you how to vote. No, I'm not doing that. Um, But the whole story of Babel, right? Planted by this man, we will rebel. And we're going to see that Babel, all the people rebel against God. This whole story of Babel is really the story of humanity. Right? And it's one of this where mankind asserts claims of independence from God and foolishly rebels against Him. And then God intervenes in judgment and mercy at the same time. It's a strange thing. In grace and mercy and judgment all in one. And He intervenes in order to see His plan of salvation come to pass and for rebellion to be seen as what it is, which is utter folly, complete and utter foolishness. Right? So... For no more by way of introduction, we are in Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. Let's check out the story of the Tower of Babel. This is what Moses writes for us. Now the whole earth 
had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Let's pray. Father, send your Holy Spirit to soften our hearts and open up our ears to the truth of your word that we could receive this text that we just read as, as what it is, which is your very word to us, so that we could see our own foolishness and repent and look to Christ. Father, if there are any unbelievers here, please draw them to your Son. And for the believers that are here, show us what's wrong with us and what is right with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so I like to recap stuff because if you're like me and someone reads stuff to you, you're not really good at retaining. So we're going to kind of hit the highlights of those nine verses that we just looked at. Uh, Just four main things, right? Um, One, we see people are traveling east, right? This is after the flood. Again, we talked about in Genesis 9, 9, 1, God gave Noah and Noah's sons and their wives the same command that he gave Adam and Eve, right? Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, right? You have dominion over the earth, fill it, make babies, which, by the way, i got to say this. We have a baby in the back. I totally forgot. It's baby Rin. It's Allie and A.J. Boggs' daughter, and it's her first church service. I'm so stoked about this. Yes. I love that baby. She's so good looking. Um, right? So he said, you know, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. So they start heading east, and they're beginning to spread out. But then humanity in general decides, hey, we found a pretty good plain, right, pretty good flat area of land for us to stay in in this place called Shinar. And they just say, we're going to settle here. Which if if you're not paying attention to to the fact that two chapters before, God said, go and fill the whole earth. He's telling them to disperse. So in, in, in humanity saying, we're going to settle here, this is a sheer act of defiance to the command of God. This is an assertion of independence. I don't need you. I don't need to listen to you. I'm, we're going to do what we want to do. Sound familiar? This is, this is humanity. So then the people decide to make themselves a city and a tower and a name for themselves. And they say they want to do this lest they be scattered over the earth. And God sees that since they are united in one place and one language, that nothing that they do will be impossible. Nothing that they want to do is going to be impossible for them because they're so united in this rebellion. So what does God do? God acts to confuse them. He gives them different languages and then disperses them. And, uh, and then they begin to form nations, we see from other parts in Genesis after this. Um, and the, the city becomes known as Babel. It wasn't always known as Babel. Uh, but Babel actually is a play on words. It sounds a lot like the word confusion in Hebrews. 
In Hebrew, not Hebrews. That's a book of the New Testament. In Hebrew, it sounds uh, like confusion. So again, God, it becomes known as, as confusion. That, that's hilarious to me because it shows you like the foolishness and the eternal scorn of these people who would rebel against God. But something I think it's good that we recognize is that the fact that they wanted to build a city and build a tower, that wasn't the root of their sin. Like, right? like That wasn't actually what offended God, as far as I can tell. That was the fruit of their sin. right? Like that, That's the evil, like the, the wickedness in their heart working itself out into action, was building a city and building a tower. But the sin that was in their heart that led them to those actions and led them to not wanting to disperse and just defy God and settle all in one place against His command was pride. We don't need Him. Pride and unbelief. We don't trust Him. Right? Like, think about it. It would be kind of scary for God to tell you, go. This big, open, wide earth, go. Scatter. Break apart from all these people that you've once lived together with. Break apart and fill the earth. That would be a scary thing for God to tell us to do, right? Like, some of us are afraid to move to, like, Wheelersburg from Portsmouth, right? Uh, So imagine this, like, times 10, uh, or 100, whatever. Um, But this whole thing, this, this pride and unbelief is a false declaration of independence from God. And again, it started with refusing to disperse. So why did they want to build a city and a tower? They were rebels. They were rebellious against God and his authority over their lives. And I would argue this. Their rebellion against God, their hostility towards God, really stemmed from unbelief. I'm going to make that argument. Keep that in your head. All rebellion against God, all rejection of God, all assertion of independence and self-reliance apart from God stems from unbelief about something about God. They didn't believe that God was the author and sustainer of life. They didn't believe that his protection was enough for them. Right? So they said we should stay here and stay together. They did not believe that his decree that his law was worthy of obedience, and they did not believe that praise and glory belonged to him and him alone. So their unbelief led to their rebellion. So again, why did they build a city and a tower? I I think that there's two reasons, or one for each. One, with the city. He said they made a city for themselves. I, I, I see in this text that they were trying to make themselves secure, apart from God. Right? They, were, they were all about their own comfort and their own security. Right? And the reason why I say that is because the text says that their reasoning was, lest we be scattered. Right? Uh, so I imagine they're thinking, we will establish our own protection. There is strength in numbers. God doesn't know how to take care of us, really. So we will take care of ourselves. We don't need him. We can protect ourselves. We can stabilize our own lives. Which is basically an assertion that they would be perfectly fine without their creator and without his blessing. Again, God is not enough. Unbelief. They believe that they could stabilize their own lives and find peace in this life by their own efforts and their own plans. I think that that's what the city represents here. That that was really their heart in wanting to build that city for their own security. And they said they also wanted to build a tower. The the text says that they built this tower in order to make a name for themselves. Right? It said, with its top in the heavens, right? which is another, just a big like, middle finger towards God as far as I can tell. We're going to build this thing with its top in the heavens and make a name for ourselves because they were seeking out their own praise. 
Right? So uh, from what I can understand from, from all the studying that I did, this tower, this is their thinking, this tower will be an eternal monument to our greatness. Again, they're making a name for themselves. That future generations will see this tower and with it, it is, as tall as it is, and they're going to know that we were here, that we were mighty, that we were awesome, essentially. And they will remember us, and they will marvel at our greatness. Again, they were building this tower for posterity, so that people would know who they were and know how awesome that they were. That tells me that these people were seeking a form of eternality outside of God. Even though the Bible tells us clearly that God is the only source of eternal life, And there's no life to be found apart from him. These self-idolaters were willing to scrape and settle for the praise of man. And in doing so, attempt to rob God of his glory. So they wanted this, this city for security. And they wanted this tower for their own praise for generations to come. To try to accrue for themselves some kind of eternal significance. Because after they're gone, people will still remember them. So they wanted eternality, stability, security, and praise. And they wanted all of it apart from God and His blessing. Now this self-assured claim of independence is still in us. Right? Again, mankind has not changed. We still desire the exact same things. And and I'll say this. Whenever you read the Bible, I want you to read it properly. You're the bad guy. Right? Like we are always the bad guy in scripture. So the Babylonians screwed up royally in building this city and tower and rebelling against God. Identify with them as you think about this story. Because we're always the bad guy. God is always the good guy. Right? And in this, if you're here and you're not a Christian, if you're an unbeliever, this is certainly you. Do you not live life for your own security? And do you not live life for your own glory and your own praise, living how you see fit for yourself? And believer, is this not you as well? Where you're at war with your flesh daily. And daily you're willing to disobey God for your own security and your own comfort. Willing to backstab and backbite in order to get your own praise and make yourself look great. Is this not something that we struggle against, Christians? So for both unbelievers and believers, no one gets a free pass. We are all the bad guy in this story. So what I want us to see as, as we go on, because I'm not going to give an exhaustive list. right? I, I just had some, some ideas of how this uh, shows itself in our lives. Um, these, these ideas of security and self-glorification. I want us to see, so be thinking in your own mind, how am I like this? Because I want us to see that the sins of Babel are indeed our sins. Because we do the same garbage stuff. Man is just as wicked as it's always been. Not any worse, not any better. Man's always been this way. So, we attempt to build our own city. Right? That's the first thing that I, I want to kind of go to. I think that we attempt to build our own city just like the Babylonians. That we seek out our own security by our own work. And in doing so, we live apart from God. Because more often than not, in order to say yes to yourself, you have to say no to God. Way more often than not. And in seeking out our own security by our own work, I'm convinced that we make security and comfort our false God. Right? Lowercase g, it becomes an idol, and all of it stems from unbelief. There's a few examples that I have of that. Financially, right? we, we make our finances a God, a God of comfort and stability. Why? Because we believe our money will bring us security here. Which means our, our unbelief is that we, we don't believe that God will take care of us, even though Jesus tells us this in Matthew chapter 6. He says, but if God so clothes the grass of the field 
which is today, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Jesus is talking to believers. He says, Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles, right, or those who don't know God, the unbeliever, for the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. We don't believe that. We don't. Like, by and large, at least in in American Christianity, we do not believe that. We don't believe that God is going to be our security and our stability for our day-to-day needs, which leads us to rebellion. So what do we begin to do? We begin to throw back and save as much cash as possible And in doing so, right, and I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with that, right, I'm very frugal, dare I say it, my wife would call me cheap, right, I'm not saying that it's bad to save your money, but in being so consumed with saving and so consumed with retirement or so consumed with having as much as we possibly can in order to get our own security out of our money, we must necessarily refuse to be generous to the poor. If money is our security... You must necessarily refuse to be generous. You must refuse to help brothers and sisters in need. You must refuse to give to the church whenever the church is in need. Do you see what I'm saying here? It's it's necessary. If money is your God and your bank account is your security, it is necessary that you would begin to sin against God and sin against your neighbor by being greedy. And we become greedy because money has become our city of security. That's one idol that we have. I think that we build uh, our own city uh, of romantic love, right? Uh, of, of romantic relationships. And what I mean by that is we believe that someone else is going to give emotional security and stability to us. right? And we live in a culture that we could not conceive of being alone. Right? Let alone celibate. We, 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 couldn't, we can't imagine being alone. We can't imagine not being in a relationship. That's what everything in our life revolves around because we think we need someone else to give us emotional security and stability. Why? Because we don't believe that knowing God is enough. Even though we have a record of a ton of men who lived, their, lived and died their lives, lived their lives and died celibate to the glory of God, the Apostle Paul being chief among them. Because he said, I, can, I count everything as rubbish. I know Christ Everything's about him. I've decided not to have a wife and decided not to have a romantic relationship because I find enough comfort in Christ. I don't need those things. I'm not saying that that's easy. But we begin to idolize romantic relationships because we don't believe that knowing God is is enough. So what rebellion does that unbelief lead us to? Well, I see it here because I talk to you guys a lot. right? I'm kind of eyeballing college students, but not exclusively on this. People are willing to be in ungodly relationships. And what I mean by that is Christians are willing to be uh, in romantic involvements with unbelievers. That Moses tells us in Deuteronomy to stay away from that. And Paul tells us in his letters to the Corinthians to stay away from those things. Because what relationship does Christ have with Satan? But I see people being willing to sell out that biblical truth and that command from God. Because they must be in a relationship now. Or they're willing to be in a relationship that's uh, sexually immoral. Because they can't imagine not being alone. Or they can't imagine being alone. They have to be with someone because that person is going to make them emotionally secure. We become willing to do whatever it takes in order to get that security that we crave. 
another one. I see us doing this uh, with our careers. So college students, I'm kind of looking at you for this. Um, We think that our future security depends solely on our future job. Or for those of us who aren't in college, if you're a dropout like me, our current job. And we don't think, we don't believe, rather, as the Bible would tell us, that our identity is found in Christ, that we have been chosen by God and bought by the blood of Christ, and we are His children. We reject that identity and don't believe that that is enough or that that is even real. And we begin to devote as much time as possible to chasing our career. School comes first. My job comes first. And in order to further my career, and whether I'm prepping for it or whether I'm already in it, we're willing to shelve attending church services together. Right? I've, I've talked to a lot of you guys about this. Hey, why weren't you at church? I really had to study. It's like, you didn't have an hour? Like, even though it's like a command of God that we not break the Sabbath and that we not forsake assembling together, like you would shelve the command of God and give him the finger in order to study for an hour that you totally could have had yesterday had you not watched Netflix for four. Too real? Or, hey, man, how's it been going reading scripture? Oh, man, I've been really uh, busy with class. So you don't have 30 minutes extra that you could get up in the morning to study the scriptures. You don't have any extra time to pray. No, because you're willing to shelve those things in order to pursue your career or pursue whatever leisure activities that you have because those things have become your functional gods because those are more important than Jesus. Then I think spiritually we do this. We all do this spiritually where we don't believe that Christ alone is going to be sufficient for our salvation because the gospel is too scandalous and easy. So what do we do? We reject the salvation of God that is given to us through faith in Christ, and we try to secure our salvation by our works. I'll do enough good works to outweigh my bad, my bad deeds, and God will forgive me because I've been really good. And we try to build our own salvation. We try to secure our own salvation by our works. Unbelievers for certain do this. I can't tell you how often that I hear this view from unbelievers. But believers drift towards this too. Why do I say that? We run from God when we sin, do we not? I feel like we can't approach him again. I feel like we can't serve whenever we have morally failed and sinned. Why? Because we believe that our right standing with him was somehow based upon our works. So we all drift towards this spiritually, among other ways. Now, we can try to build this city of security with whatever thing it is that we're trying to, uh, to have security. And we can do this with anything. This is not an exhaustive list, right? Those are four things of many more that we could have done. But whatever that that thing is, your home, your car, your retirement, people around you, whatever it is that become your functional God, that you're trying so hard to find your security and your money, whatever, those things become your God's. And I say that because we become so consumed with those things giving us security that we begin to claim independence from God because we begin to forsake God. We're idolaters. But not only that, I think we also begin uh, to attempt at times to build our own tower of self-glorification, right? Where we seek man's praise above everything else and we begin to do whatever is necessary to gain as much status as we can, as much fame as we can, even if it's local white trash fame like Portsmouth offers, right? To to get like local fame or local respect or even status or power within the church, We become so consumed with man's praise that we become willing to do anything to get those things. And 
in the world. We, some people I know forsake their profession of faith in order to climb that ladder and they put their uh, faith in Christ on the back burner, so to speak, and they're not public about it in order that they could uh, keep uh, a good opinion of themselves in the minds of the unbelievers around them or in order to climb the social ladder in whatever area in their life. They're willing to backstab people. They're willing to sin. They're willing to be proud and arrogant. Anything that they have to do to get what they want as far as respect goes. And I see, I see Christians do this next one. Doing good deeds in order to be recognized by men so that we have such a good reputation because you're such a good person. right? Or being like the Pharisees that Jesus talked about where you do good deeds in the public square blowing trumpets as you do them so that people would look at you and see how great you are for your own glory. Whenever Jesus tells us, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. <laughs> do all of your good deeds to the glory of God. But this self-glorification, however it happens, is really you living for your own praise and your own glory so that people would look at you and say, this respectable, this high-ranking, this great person, whatever it is. And that's idolatry of self. God refuses to share his glory with anybody. He refused to share praise with anybody. Well, here's what I thought was interesting. is How does God, right? So now that we've kind of brought that home and seen how this was real for us, right? How we, our sins are the same as the sins of Babel. Or at least I hope that you're thinking on those things, even if I didn't list anything that was you. I use really broad stuff, hoping to, you know, throw a buckshot out of the crowd and hit somebody. Um, how does God respond to the self-reliance and self-glorification of Babel. What does he do? Let's read. Let's reread Genesis 11, 5 through 8. This is God's response. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. So what did God do in response to this city of security and this tower of self-glorification? He responded in judgment. I understand some of you are thinking, what fire and brimstone church have I walked into? But God responds in judgment. This is a fact that the scriptures tell us. God judges the unrighteous. But notice this. It was a merciful judgment. I want you to to consider this for just a second, because we don't think about God's judgment as ever being gracious or ever being merciful. These people deserve to die for this treason against God. Any sin against God is an act of cosmic treason. These people have become idolaters, worshiping the creation instead of the creator, looking for something to be their functional God instead of the God who created them. This is treason against the king of the universe. They deserve to die. They deserve to die immediately and go to hell for what they've done. But what does God do? He confuses their languages and scatters them. Consider the mercy of God. That he would be this patient towards sinners. In this merciful judgment that he gives them, he teaches us some things. I think he teaches us three things, uh, among others. The first, God exposes the utter foolishness of rebellion against God. 
they rebelled against him. They said, we're not, going to, we're not going to scatter across the earth. We're going to build this city. We're going to build this tower for our praise. And what does God do? He scatters them anyway. Therein lies the utter futility of rebellion against God. Mankind may rebel against God. I don't deny that. You might rebel against God for the rest of your entire life. But it is a losing battle because Scripture, God Himself declares to us that one day everyone will bow the knee to Jesus Christ and confess that He is their Lord. You either do it now in willing submission to the King who died for your sin, or you'll do it one day under God's compulsion. But make no mistake, you are fighting a losing battle. God always wins. He will accept no idols. He will give His glory to no other. His purpose will stand. You will confess His kingship. Period. This is the foolishness of rebellion against God. He stands. But God also shows us this, that none are secure apart from Him. Again, I, I, I think that they were afraid to scatter, and that fear led to their rebellion, and I don't think that it was, it was an unbelief that God would protect them. So they sought their security somewhere else. What happened? They didn't want to be dispersed. They were scattered anyway. I know it's, it's a similar point to the one I just made. But they sought their own security in this building, in this city, in this tower. And what happens? It says that after God confused their, uh, confused their language, they left off building. They didn't even finish it. <laughs> there is no security apart from God. God scatters them anyway. To me, that proves that human attempts at security are frail and fleeting. Your money, your relationship, everything can be taken from you in an instant. And then where is your God now? God actually, through the Psalms and in different parts of the Old Testament, through His prophets, He mocks those who put their trust in false gods. He says, I was here, I was offering myself to you, you chose this thing instead. You're a fool eternally for this idolatry. This shows, again, the foolishness of human attempts at security apart from God. Thirdly, I think God shows us in his merciful judgment that man's praise and his glory is a vapor. So if you're living to please other people, if you're living for the praise and glory and respect and status that comes with pleasing men, what do we see? Again, the tower was never finished. The tower never was built. These men are eternal fools. Eternally foolish But what do we know? We know God's word endures forever. And Genesis is an eternal, like this chapter in Genesis is an eternal monument to the folly of man who would live for their own glory and seek to make a name for themselves instead of seeking to make God's name great. The tower wasn't finished. Scripture will stand eternal and Scripture eternally calls these men fools because they rebelled against God. That's about how, that's what man's praise and glory is worth. It's a vapor. It's worthless. It will not stand eternally. So in an act of grace and judgment, what does God do? To sum all that up, He brings their idols of security, comfort, and praise down around their ears. But why do I say grace? I don't just mean that it was gracious that He didn't kill them. But I mean like, 
Here's, here's what I'm getting at. Why do I say gracious? Verse 6, God says this. And this kind of confused me in, uh, while I was studying for this. And maybe it did you since we started reading it. Verse 6 says this. Nothing they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Right? That's what God says. And I thought, oh, was God? I obviously knew this was false. But I was like, that sounds like God was afraid of what mankind was capable of. God is fearless throughout the scripture. He fears, doesn't fear his creation. Why would God be so concerned that nothing they propose to do now will be impossible for them? Here's the grace of God here. God sees the damning rebellion and idolatry of mankind, and he sees that they are so united in this together that this rebellion will continue and none of them will be saved unless I intervene here. Unless God intervenes, the rebellion will continue. Nothing they propose to do is going to be impossible for them. They will never stop rebelling against me. I must intervene. So what does God do? He intervenes. He confuses their languages. He disperses them because He's patient and He's merciful towards sinners. He takes no delight in the damnation of the wicked. He will do it, but make no mistake, He does not joy. He's not joyful about it, but He will do it. So God intervenes, which is a foreshadowing of the ultimate intervention of Christ. Where God sees the the rebellion that's in our hearts against Him. So what does He do? He takes on flesh and He comes to earth and He takes our sin on Himself. He takes all of our rebellion on Himself. He pays the penalty that we deserve. Jesus Christ suffers the wrath of God in our place on a cross. He's raised from the dead for our justification. He ascends to heaven. And then God sends His Holy Spirit into our hearts to change us so that we would see God as beautiful. So that the rebellion in our hearts would be put to an end. That we would now love God the way that, that they were supposed to in Babel. That we would now seek security out in God like they were supposed to. That we would now live for His praise and His glory because we see Him as glorious as He actually is. Babel is a foreshadowing of Christ where God intervenes to put to death the rebellion in our hearts through the blood of Jesus. Where Jesus makes enemies and unbelievers into sons and believers of Christ. God mercifully intervenes. And in the gospel, this is, this is so cool. In the gospel, God shows us that the things that we desire, right? Even the Babylonians, they desired security and comfort and a form of eternality, right? A, a way to live forever. God shows us through the gospel that those things are only really found in their true forms through faith in Christ. All right, security. Consider this. Whenever we say we want security, what are we really saying? I, I would wager we're saying, I want peace. I want to know that everything will be okay. I want to know that no matter what assails me in this life, that I'm going to be okay. That's what security is. What does God offer us? He offers us peace with Him through faith in Christ. It's Romans 5.1. Now that we have peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ. Even in our suffering, we can have peace with God because God says that He works all things out to His glory and the benefit of those who love Him. So if we have faith in Christ, if we are found in Christ, even in our suffering, we can know that all things are part of His plan. All things are for our ultimate good because, and we know that He loves us because He sent Christ to die for us. Even when we're afraid, we can know that nothing happens apart from God's sovereign, eternal plan. And He loves me. That God is Father. That He cares. That He sees. That we are eternally secure in Him. 
That we have an everlasting peace that nothing can take from us. And we have it through Christ. So he offers us that security that we were looking for. That we were trying to find so desperately in false gods. And he offers us eternality. Not just eternal life. For certain that. But consider this. God's praise never ends. We want to live for our praise and our glory. But that's a vapor. right? The tower will eventually be destroyed. But God's praise never ends. And the Bible tells us that God sees what we do in His name for His glory. And He rewards us eternally. That the deeds that we do in His name will echo throughout eternity to the praise of His glorious grace. That He has wrought these works in us. So in Christ, we have and begin to build that which will never be torn down. Because God himself stands eternal. So, I guess the the point of application for this, right, would be, I have a question. What are you doing with your life? Is everything about your praise and your glory and you getting respect is everything about your own financial security, your romantic security. Is everything about you? Is everything about you building your own kingdom that is sure to fall? Or is it about something greater than that? The song Stephen sang, the first verse, he sang it because I asked him to sing this. I think it's very fitting here with the question, what are you doing with your life? Should nothing of our efforts stand, no legacy survive, unless the Lord does raise the house, in vain its builders strive. To you who boast tomorrow's gain, tell me, what is your life? It's a mist that vanishes at dawn. All glory be to Christ. Christ is the only one that stands eternal. Everything that you could possibly do in this life for your own security, your own praise, your own comfort, it will fail, but He will not. Your life is a vapor that vanishes at dawn, but Christ's glory goes on for eternity. What are you doing with your life? Are you doing something that actually matters? Are you living for you or are you owned by God? Have something that truly matters. Do something that really matters. But we see from this account that asserting self-sufficiency and self-reliance ends in eternal scorn. Which the Proverbs and James tells us, God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. We also see that by God's grace, and He will bring, hear me, by His grace, He will bring down our idols so that we can see them for what they are and see Him for who He is and repent. God loves you enough, believer or unbeliever. I'd say this to you, if you put your faith in Christ, God loves you enough to take away anything that keeps you from Him. And He will. He will hedge you up so that you have nowhere forward to go, but you must go back to Him. He loves you that much that He would rip every false God in your life out so you could come back to Him. So as I say that, I want to 
make a disclaimer, I guess. Don't repent. Or I want to clarify this. Don't repent. I put that in quotations. Because you fear what God may take. Because that is not repentance. God might take my money if I don't stop idolizing it. Like that, no, money is still your God then. That's not real repentance. God wants us to forsake our worldly desires and our worldly security because we desire Him above all things and we see that He alone brings peace. And if you're not there yet where you can't see that, pray that God would show Himself to be everything that you want. God's the only one that can change your heart. You can't will yourself to view life differently. Pray that God would do an act of grace in you. That you would begin to see and believe that He is greater than everything else. And lastly, we see that in Christ we receive a true version of that which we desire so badly. And that's because what we seek can only truly and everlastingly come from God, who is Himself the true and eternal. The world offers you idols that cannot deliver what they promise. That which you seek, that which our hearts yearn for, is not here. It's in Christ. So the world offers idols that can't deliver what they promise, but God offers himself to you. And he cannot and will not fail you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace, for your gracious judgment. Father, tear down any idols in our hearts, anything that we're looking for uh, apart from you. God, show us the, the folly of those things. Show us our foolishness. Show yourself to be supreme. Draw us near to you. God, break us so that we would humble ourselves before you so that you could raise us up. God, you are glorious. You are supreme. You are great. Help us to see that more clearly daily. In Jesus' name, amen.